Hello and welcome to Sea Change, a podcast series by the Scottish Fisheries Museum. This podcast asks a selection of the most knowledgeable people their thoughts on the current situations facing our seas and what they think the future looks like. Okay, so I'm here for another of our Sea Change podcasts this morning with Moya Crawford. So um, Moya, if you could just introduce yourself to begin with um, and tell us a little bit about your work. That, um, well, my name is Moya Crawford. I've lived by the sea practically all my life and have worked with the sea in various forms um, all my working life. That is with salvage, um, marine engineering, and also with science. So a, a broad overview, really. A very broad and I think a very practical overview. Mm-hmm. So um, when I think about the sea, I think of it um, through the soles of my feet and the motion of a vessel. I think that's a good thing, definitely. <laughs> so our first question for you today is about how you interact with the seas in your work. The sea and how the sea behaves affects all the engineering uh, that we do. In the terms of our salvage operations, when we worked down to 3,000 metres was the deepest wreck that we ever worked, that the first thing we do is look at the ship. The second thing we look at, what is the sea like? What is the weather like? What are the conditions? So our life has always been dominated by the behaviour of the sea. Mm, that's that's a, an interesting point about the, the sea being sort of a being in itself. Absolutely, that, that idea of it, it impacts your work as much as you impact it. Uh, depending, yes, absolutely. And depending on the circumstances and depending upon the mood of the sea, that one can be monitoring its behaviour on a second-by-second second <laughs> basis to just uh, you know waiting for some tremendous gale to to blow past so yes it is it is a, a dominating force an absolutely dominating force <laughs> that's very interesting to hear um our next question is um how do you go about engaging the public um in your work it's very interesting um a question that because that we will engage with the public mostly regarding the wrecks that we work upon Mm. and what they think about wrecks, particularly if there have been people lost Mm. um, on Mm -hmm. those ships. So that um, I suspect probably the best way to say it is that in the terms of a wreck and doing a salvage job um, on a wreck where people have died, we interact with the public the way we would like to be interacted with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, uh, on the SS Persia, although she was sunk as long ago as 1915, uh, there were 344 people killed Mm -hmm. when she was Mm -hmm. sunk. So they all have families, and so you tell them about the ship. But in the same sense, you're not just telling them about the ship and how she sank, but you're telling them about where where the wreck lies, what the weather's like there, what the conditions are like there. So you take them on a journey with you. So that, I would say, is how I interact most with the general public. Yeah, absolutely. A very human um, interaction, I would say. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating area. I hope we'll get to hear a little bit more about um, your work with different wrecks um, 
further on in the podcast. So our meatiest question for you um, in this podcast is about how your work or your role has broadened your understanding of the issues that face our seas. That my work at sea and my own personal relationship with the sea, and I think of it in many different places, many different guises, it absolutely drives the work that we do. And in the terms of our engineering, we take sustainability, the impact um, of our engineering uh, on the marine ecosystems around us as being exceptionally important. And also, we take our understanding of the oceans and how they Uh, and how they behave from our very privileged underwater view, um, we've taken that into other issues rather like decommissioning, the impact of man-made structures um, on the marine ecosystem. So um, I would say that uh, it it drives practically every aspect of of what we do, um, including how good our engineering has to be to withstand (laughs) what the seas sometimes do. Do dust to us uh, rather than um, the other way around. It's a two-way street, I have to say. Absolutely, and again, coming coming clearly through um, from from what you're saying is just this this um, concept of the sea being, a f- you know, an unstoppable force and something that you know you absolutely can't control. You just have to sort of work with, I guess. Yes. Oh, well, absolutely, and I, I think it's one of the very different things about marine salvage, although that we. Um, that have always worked um, ships that have sunk, so they've either run aground or they've been sunk during one of the two world wars, uh, and that's a, a very different form of salvage. One is very conscious of the sea when there are ships in distress, mm-hmm. that you look at the power of the sea, and actually what man does is really, it's almost, I wouldn't quite say irrelevant at times mm-hmm. uh, in comparison, but it is most definitely, we are a puny force in many respects. And the irony is, though, through some of our other behaviour, uh, we're impacting on the sea uh, in the terms of um, CO2 output, increase in uh, global mean surface temperature. So I, I think that uh, there's something of a paradox that there are, at times, the sea is absolutely brut- brutal and it can destroy. Uh, that that whatever we make, however strong we make it, but um, in other parts that uh, we are imp- impacting um, on its uh, health and productivity, and that's a very very serious issue. Absolutely, and it's clearly the case that both of those things sort of work in tandem with the work that you do, especially with salvage. Definitely. Yes, they do, and they do. And so, and what we've done more latterly over the years is that we've taken technologies that we've developed to undertake our salvage work, and that we've taken them into that into other sectors, such as mm-hmm. the oil and gas sector, um, offshore renewables, um, and it is that understanding of the sea and the long-term understanding from being in one position for a long period of time, where you have to understand the tides, the weather. Um, current, all, all sorts of aspects, and you see all forms of marine life go past you. Uh, the two come together. So one of the things that I really do in my work today is link biology and engineering absolutely together in what we do. 
and uh, yeah, so it makes it for a very full and very interesting uh, work scope. Absolutely, but I think that that absolutely makes sense. It's something that's very clear to me in speaking to lots of different people um, about their work and about their research is that communication is absolutely key and sharing ideas and sharing knowledge, I think, is 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 a key part of, of understanding what's happening in the seas. Very much so. And that's why one of the things that we've been doing over the last four years, which is using simulation mm. um, as a means of better understanding the interaction between um, engineering objects and the marine ecosystems in which they've put, that's taken our work absolutely forward in strides. And uh, so that the whole aspect of of looking at the sea in multiple dimensions. So one is looking also as changing temperature as a mm-hmm. dimension, the passage of time as a dimension. So um, that so it's very, very exciting the way that certain technologies are opening out and which we very much um, like being at the forefront of that and, and using it not just to make our technology good, um, but um, world class, but to to get it as efficient as possible and have the least impact on where we work. Absolutely, and this is something obviously that is yeah dependent on the capability of the technology. So, it, do you feel that that's something that's come on leaps and bounds in the last little while, or is it something that's been more sort of gradual? The impact of these new technologies. I think. The cumulative impact of various technologies um, have had a phenomenal impact. Mm. Um, as a company, and this is probably in 1979, uh, we bought the first low-light um, level black and white mm. underwater camera. That's, and now when you see how underwater images, video images, have completely changed people's view of the planet. And people talk about the David Attenborough effect. And Mm -hmm. I would say equally for David Attenborough, it has been the underwater camera, the underwater video camera effect. So, So, and that's an example of a technology that we've brought in and has enabled us to, to, completely alter our capability as I say working down to 3,000 meters of water with constant images to the surface just absolutely fantastic wonderful Uh, absolutely I think that this is something that I'm sure you come across quite a lot is that it's so so difficult to comprehend what happens at 3,000 meters under the sea so I imagine that as the technology has advanced it's become like has it become any easier to communicate Well, I think one of the things which is most difficult to communicate is that people talk about the deep ocean as being a very hostile environment. Mm, mm -hmm. And that, to me, is not the case. That if you go to the deep ocean, it is very, depending where you are, but in vast, over vast areas, that it is the the water, the, the water column, the volume of water, is very, very stable over large areas Mm, mm. it may be hostile to us because we have lungs and we couldn't breathe (laughs) but you know that that biosphere is very 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 stable what is very very dramatic and very hostile are the shorelines and the beaches Mm. that we go to on an everyday basis so I think that to be able to people to actually 
get them to understand that they are viewing one of the most dynamic, challenging for nature areas when they go down to the, the, the foreshore is uh, probably the first step getting people to, to comprehend the sea as a whole because mm. it is so multifaceted depending on which particular part you're looking at at which particular time yeah ever-changing ever-changing yeah ever -changing. absolutely no that's that's fascinating and just um to pick up on a conversation we've we've had previously it would be very interesting to hear a little bit about um your salvage work on persia i think that our listeners might might find that very interesting okay well um the ss persia was um uh, a passenger ship going from Tilbury Dock in London uh, to Calcutta uh, that uh, in, the, in the fading months of 2015. Mm -hmm. um, she was sunk without warning, that she capsized um, in five minutes mm -hmm. uh, and sank, uh, taking 344 people with mm -hmm. her, um, along with gold, silver, diamonds, and to make it even more exotic, the jewels of a Maharaja. Uh, that it was our job to, um, under no cure, no pay, which makes it very exacting exercise, to uh, cut down through five le deck levels uh, mm. to the bullion room of the Persia uh, and recover the contents. So as a company, essentially as a family business, we developed world-leading technology um, to undertake this. And so we had our own fascinating world, um, which um, is a huge privilege. Uh, but it's not just the ship um, on the Persia uh, that one of the people who drowned was Eleanor Thornton. So we didn't know that at the time until, but she was uh, the secretary and lover of somebody called Lord Montague of Bewley. Uh, and she was also the model for the spirit of ecstasy. So one of the things that I found very, very strange being on the wreck site, uh, we're on the surface, nobody goes subsea, all our technology is remote, but you're on this disk of ocean, uh, of ocean where this terrible event has happened, you know, sort of uh, many years before, and you're the only people in mm. the world that really know what it's like. And also, I think very poignantly, where many people met the end of their lives, and that's a very, very strange feeling and to a certain extent I wouldn't say that one feels complicit but you certainly know that you wouldn't be there unless somebody else had actually done something that you consider to be terribly bad so I find that quite a reflective piece of you know sort of <laughs> absolutely I'm sure I'm absolutely sure of it yes. I think I think that's it it's, it's about it's about all these worlds yes that, you know that the sea sort of holds I yes guess. the secrets it holds yeah uh, and the fact that you can look at that depth you can look at a piece of uh, of uh, of seabed to you what is in real time and you're probably the only people who have ever seen that piece of seabed and you're probably the only people who will ever see it again and that again I find a little strange in the terms of huge privilege but also a very great responsibility so in the terms of of combining that knowledge that understanding and and bringing what is really very very industrial engineering with science mm. i think it is an imperative and it is to the benefit of both parties as well so. absolutely so it's a mixture of yeah science engineering and then also this this 
absolutely human element yes. to the story. Yes. So no, what a, what a fascinating mix of mix of things. Um, our next question in the podcast is: If you could tell someone something they might not know about our seas, what would it be? It's quite a big question. I think it is how the oceans behave as part battery, part wonderful heat engine, and regulate how we live wherever we are in, on the planet. So if you just take, we go to the Francois Vielger, if I think in Rex, there's Rex there at 42 degrees north, off the Atlantic coast of Spain. People can think of what the weather's like there. That's on the same latitude as New York to the <laughs> west. Mm. Now, the weather patterns are completely different. And if it weren't for that heat engine, then, you know, that if it didn't have the same path, where each of us live, our, geog our industry, our culture would be completely different. So on a fundamental level, I believe that that's one of the most important things with energy now being a part at the forefront of how we use energy every part of our lives to understand what a fundamental role the sea has in regulating that is exceptionally important. Mm, that, that's, that is very interesting. And I think what comes from that as well is is how global it is as a, as an issue it's it's not you, you can't you can't view sea in isolation can you it's, it's it's part of it's part of our world it's it's the whole it's the whole thing it's the ultimate interconnection yeah and i sometimes think of the sea as a sort of um as an esperanto there's a language <laughs> around the sea it's mm -hmm. a it's a liquid esperanto that links us all so that you can go to somewhere completely different you don't speak the language but you have, if you have an understanding of the sea, whatever, then you have things to share with each other. So that, um, yes, I think that that's, um, it's the ultimate interface for us all. That's, that's such a wonderful way of viewing it. And I think, you know, people who live in Scotland, who live near even the Fisheries Museum where we are today, it, it's, it's, it's an omnipresent, you know, thing for us. But it might not be the case that everyone quite appreciates how, how much it really actually controls everything. Absolutely, it mm -hmm. does control everything. And I think, I, particularly for Scotland, when you consider that, you know, it takes three hours literally to drive from one coast to the yes, other, yes. that the weather that they get on the, on the west coast, it's not very long before we experience it here. Mm. Um, it is, it, it's the, the, the weather, that what the sea does, it dictates... Uh, everyday life and if you are lucky enough to to live looking at the sea I think like me you get used to checking it every few yeah. <laughs> every few minutes <laughs> what's that up to now <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> so unpredictable yes. <laughs> yeah absolutely that's that's that I think that is the case you you become a little bit sort of complacent I think when you live you live nearby sometimes I think there's an there's an element of that but then also I think if you took it away People would yes be yes well lost. I think I think we check up on it more than we think we do you yeah know? that's that's true actually I'm sure you're right that maybe you're doing it subconsciously <laughs> yes. 
So our next question, and I think you might have some very interesting thoughts to share on this one, is about what our listeners can do to play their part in the next 50 years of the sea. That I believe that how we can improve the health, cleanness and productivities of the oceans on a local, regional and global basis starts in our own homes. Mm. That uh, if you consider the way that anybody who um, has a, a boat or a yacht or a ship, how they have had to or have chosen in many respects alter the way they deal with rubbish, the way they deal with waste, um, just how they interact with the ocean. I believe that we need to be able to transport that, that concept of when we live in our own homes or we conduct our own businesses, that most of the stuff that we discard or jettison, if we do not look after it responsibly, will end up in the ocean. So from our running our washing machines to you know what we put down the drains to what we wear to how we operate in our gardens I think each of us needs to be much more connected mm -hmm. with the eventual fate of what leaves our homes and we must take responsibility for that and not have the attitude that we had at sea at one time oh it would just disappear something mm -hmm. would take care of it um, dilution is the solution whereas we have an attitude perhaps the council will deal with it somebody else will deal with it it's not our responsibility I think it's our individual responsibility and that we need to take the discussion that's currently ha happening around plastics and packaging and we need to extend that to many other aspects of how we live and operate in our lives if we are interested in the health of the sea because mm -hmm. you can't look at the health of the sea without looking at what we do on land. They are absolutely, again, they're completely linked to each other. I think that's a really, really interesting point. I, th I feel as though, it, it seems as though at least, that there is there is an increasing awareness of plastic pollution. I think, yeah, we spoke about the Attenborough effect, didn't we, yes. earlier, and, and that, that whole sort of uh, view into what, what ocean plastics can do and people are, you know, actually, and there's just become a plastic-free town, which is very exciting. Um, but th there is this increasing awareness, but but perhaps, I don't know, is, is there, there, there is still a level of disconnect, isn't there, between, you know, what leaves your home and where it ends up? I think I think there is, even if there is this, a slightly greater awareness, there is still a yes, disconnect. Yes, I, I think that there is a disconnect, and to me it's one of the areas that something like simulation can help, mm -hmm. because you can get a much more... Uh, a much greater sense of connection. And I also think societally that there are different decisions that, um, and spatial decisions that we have to make. Um, and I think there are really interesting discussions to be had over the use of plastics at all forms in our lives. And I would say, going back to business again, one of the things that we've done as a company is actually harnessed high performance, what are essentially plastics, they're high performance plastics, uh, in rope um, to replace mm -hmm. steel. Now, in many respects, 
that allows us to absolutely cut down our carbon footprint because they are so efficient, they're lightweight, um, that they're, um, that, uh, that, so the ropes that we use are a seventh of the weight of steel in, uh, in air and they are weightless in water. Mm. But we may be producing microplastics. So I think that there are a very, you know, there are challenges on us all to say, well, and this is where engineers and again, marine scientists must speak together with so many choices that we have to make. You know, what are the best solutions? So, um, and that bit's very much work in progress. And it's, it's again, it's, in, it's our, in our own hands. We have mm. to take responsibility for that. It's a complete balancing act, isn't it? It really? is a complete balancing Walking act. Walking a tightrope. It is. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think one of the things for me, especially with the, the, the discussion around ocean plastics and the impact that we personally have on the sea and what we can do to help, I think there's also maybe not such a great awareness that the sea is a public resource really we 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 all have ownership of the sea and i wonder whether if people were had more of an understanding of 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 their sort of well i, I would yeah. maybe phrase that in a little different way mm-hmm. in the terms of that i believe that we are custodians that's a much of, better way of saying it. Um, yep. of, the, 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 of the waters around mm-hmm. our shores mm-hmm. at a number of different levels. And that we have um, a duty of stewardship. Yep. So perhaps too much of the sea has been looked at as like a financial resource and things like yep. that. Mm-hmm. And that we have to change from money being the only metric in the way that we decide that the way that we as individuals and companies and governments should behave. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is that is key and a much better way of phrasing it. <laughs> <laughs> you knew what I was trying yes, to say. Yes, I did, I did, I did. <laughs> so to round up our um, podcast, uh, our last question, again, is, a, is quite a large one, but really fascinating to hear your thoughts. Where do you see the seas in 50 years' time? I think it very much depends on the decisions that we make Mm -hmm. now. I believe that there is the opportunity to make improvements and great improvements in a way that does not harmfully or deleteriously affect the quality of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So that, but we need a concerted we need a concerted um, effort at all scales. And I go back to the individual scale on that. So I would side um, with somebody like uh, Hans Roslink, who believes that we have the capacity to, um, to do good and make positive change, but it doesn't with a world population that's going to be up to 11 million people pretty soon. Mm. I think it needs all our efforts and so, um, but I think that we can um, alter, we can keep the global mean surface temperature beneath 1.5 degrees centigrade, um, but that's not going to happen by itself. We all have to work to make that, uh, to make that a reality. So. That's a rousing call to action <laughs> to end our podcast today. Thank you so, so much for speaking to me, Moya. Um, it's been really fascinating to hear all about your work. Um, and I hope that everyone's enjoyed listening. <laughs>
Well, thank you very much for asking me, Ailey. I've enjoyed it too. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sea Change, the Scottish Fisheries Museum podcast series that accompanies our exhibition of the same name, running from the 24th of January to the 21st of June 2020. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to Elspeth MacDonald.